politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, to day number 13 under siege. We're forgotten Americans that are stepped on and trampled by our government. Our respective state and federal governments have no voice to turn to, but this is your voice. This is your sanctuary. And in that vein, you should all subscribe and like our page, Facebook page, Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary. Um, great place to network. There's a lot of good content from our all-volunteer team. It's really all-volunteer. And if you want to help join and, and you feel you have stuff to contribute, uh, click on the send email to, to them and they'll get back to you. I'm in touch with them regularly. I will try to put out Facebook Lives and some some videos there at the fan page over time. So you'll be able to see more content than just the articles and their content and the shows. Um, but there is certainly a lot going on. And, you know, this week is not going to get duller. And really, we have to gird our loins for a big fight next week. Hashtag reopen America. No, we do not mean not give a darn about the virus, just the opposite, a more effective strategy, both in combating the virus and, you know, trying to at least produce a modicum of economic act activity and dealing with some of these liberty problems where Americans are put under house arrest while criminals are let go. Again, you got to get to your state legislatures. I need you guys to do that. Um, I spoke with one state legislature today, a friend of mine from Ohio, had a long conversation with him, um, and they're really trying to take my advice and convene there. So let me know if you can gain traction in your states. You could email me at dharowitz at blazemedia.com, or you could send a message to our team at the Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary Facebook page. Um, because look, we gotta have the president's back when he comes up with a plan to achieve that balance Every single, almost every single Republican governor, much less Democrat governor, although there is one Democrat governor, Cuomo, that's now walking it back. We're going to talk about that later and get an update with Jordan Schachtel. Um, But we need to prepare because they're going to push back. But I just want to note something very briefly here. Um, you know, it's hard to help the president when he doesn't help his own message. See, the president is saying a philosophy that there is no reason to destroy the economy and we need to get it moving again as much as we can. The problem the president never realizes, and this is really his fatal flaw of an entire presidency, is that he doesn't connect the legislative outcomes to his own rhetoric and philosophy. So he'll say A, and there will be a B that represents the, the legislation that represents B, the antithesis of A. And then he'll emphatically support B and then bash anyone who's trying to help his case. So you might see the news that Representative Thomas Massey from Kentucky objected to this unanimous consent to go and just have one person there without a debate um, pass the bill and force them to fly in a few people. and They're going to have a debate. I don't think he's going to hold it up and require a roll call for a quorum to come in in the end, although. You'll know that by the time this show is um, over. I, I predict he'll he'll relent on that much, but so far he did make them come back, and they're just beating him up. 
But Mr. President, if you really believe that we're this is destroying the economy, then don't we need a debate on this? This bill, a lot of it is going to permanently alter our markets and create monopolies and bankrupt us beyond belief based on a presupposition that you, Mr. President, oppose that we need a long term shutdown. If you got America working again, if you reopened America next week, yes, you will need to pay some people back, but not that amount, not all that stuff in the bill. Now, look. Personally, from a political standpoint, I advised other similar members not to do this. I said it's not worth destroying your career. It's going to pass anyway. In other words, once the fix is in and both parties agree, objecting to unanimous consent will just make yourself a spectacle and you're not going to get anything and they'll wind up passing it anyway. The time is really to get Trump on board with a veto threat early on. And, and this is what we failed to do. Once the ship sails, there's really nothing an individual member could do. So I, I would advise against it. But I mean, look, you, you got to understand him. I mean, Thomas Massey's not the problem. You might think it's not the best strategy now, but this is what I can't stand about what the president does. But nonetheless, this is where the fight needs to be. This is where the fight needs to be, because this is getting really bad really quickly. I mean, I'm seeing a number of articles on how cancer patients are put at risk from the shutdown. There's all sorts of non-coronavirus patients that are having issues. And you can't allow them to die from this shutdown. You can't do this. But the big news yesterday that we simply cannot ignore cannot ignore on any level is Cuomo. When Cuomo basically said, this is from foxnews.com at his press conference, what we did was we closed everything down. That was our public health strategy. Just close everything, all businesses, old workers, young people, old people, short people, tall people, every school closed, everything. If you rethought that that or had time to analyze that public health strategy, I don't know that you would say quarantine everyone. I don't even know that that was the best public health policy. Young people then quarantine with old people was probably not the best public health strategy because the younger people could have been exposing the older people to an infection. And he talked about public health and economic growth. We have to do both. We're working on it. So that's a big deal. I mean, the Democrat governor of the state most profoundly affected is saying what we're saying. Now that we have all this data showing it started earlier and the lethality is much less than they thought, although I do, again, I don't want to dismiss it. There's going to be people we all know that die from this. This is, this is a plague from God. Um, understanding it physically, it's a plague from China and they need to be punished. And as I, the article I have out today is, that's the one thing we're not talking about, punishing China or even preventing this in the future by shutting off travel from China. So that's a problem. But after two weeks of this, it's time to rethink the strategy. You have no constitutional right without showing more information of indefinitely doing this. Is this really the best strategy or is it counterintuitive? So in order to steer us through all this murkiness, 
all this clutter. So many people are just really confused. My own wife is like, I'm, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I mean, I'm seeing all this stuff, seeing conflicting things. And a lot of people really don't know what to do. But understanding the nature of the virus and the data and the trends really is the most important debate now, not debating stupid legislation. Hold that off, because if we get this right, a lot of that will become clear. Nobody has had greater clarity than my friend Jordan Shackdale, former colleague. He is a foreign policy, national security writer. He's an investigative journalist. Everything he does is, you know, we talked to yesterday about herd immunity to herd mentality. And everything he does is actually, you know, unique individual thought. You got to follow his Twitter feed. I cannot think of a more important follow this week than Jordan Shachtel. That's Jordan, S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-L. Follow his Twitter feed. Um, he was the first person among the first people to call BS on this and say, wait a minute, is, is this really as bad as they're making out to be, as, as serious as it is? Is this the best strategy? Um, and now we see from the Trump administration, we see the yesterday we talked about the guy himself that was the impetus for this study in the UK. Uh, Neil Ferguson is walking it back and then, well, you know, you know, claiming he's not walking it back, but he really is. So with us today is, you know, is to, to really delve into this is Jordan himself. Jordan, thanks for joining us again this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. I needed an update and I didn't know who to turn to. So again, a lot of people are very confused. Um, let's start. So our, our audience is pretty up to date here, but I want to go into some of the stuff that you're seeing new, even from when you were on the show on Monday. Um, where, what is the state of play in terms of what we're seeing? What has become clearer over the last few days? Yeah. So in this, um, exponentially increasing panic that occurred really last week into the beginning of this week, all of these states started to impose these mandatory draconian lockdowns. And I think a lot of people were left the, with the assumption that, okay, I guess this lockdown thing is a no brainer because everyone's doing it, but that's obviously not necessarily the case at all. And what's interesting, as you discussed with governor Cuomo, is he basically admitted that he's like, wait a second, you know, that statement I made um, a few days ago about us having to lock down for four to nine months. Um, I just talked to my science advisors and they said that that is, you know, ridiculous and that quarantining can actually hurt the population because when you're quarantining, you're basically just taking a guess. Um, and we did not have any you know, evidence about how widespread it was. So if you're, on the way down on the inflection curve for COVID-19, you're going, quarantining is, is going to make things significantly worse because you've started to, you know, identify the problem, get the symptomatic out of the way. But with a quarantine, you're exposing um, sick people to healthy people because you're bringing everybody in to confined spaces together. And now we know it's very clear that COVID-19, you know, it, it's not gonna spread if you're hanging out in the park and someone 30 feet away from you sneezes into the air, like that's not how you get COVID-19. You get COVID-19 through prolonged um, contact, close contact with individuals through symptomatic carriers. So the, the biggest problem we're seeing is this anti-scientific approach of locking everyone in together, regardless of whether they're healthy, sick, young, old, 
Um, and, and Cuomo, again, you know, the, this policy of, of bringing all the college students home, that is just, you know, catastrophic uh, madness, especially because we're seeing, you know, the data is super clear that, you know, even let's say there is an outbreak at, at a college, um, you have a bunch of 18 to 21 year olds that are infected, you know, God forbid the whole campus gets infected um, out of 10,000 people, uh, you might see uh, less, less than a, less than a hundred with, uh, you know, more than mild symptoms. So instead of having all these people you know, who are, who can become exposed to COVID-19 coming home and, you know, giving it to grandma and grandpa, because that's the reality in a lot of American households that your family's living together. Um, and these, these people, you know, when they're off to college or off at school for eight hours a day, they, you know, it, it's not as big a deal if they're transmitting it amongst themselves. But when they're coming home, locking it down, touching everything in the house, you know, not giving people a chance to, you know, clean their house, um, it's just creating a disaster. And the quarantine policies just really don't seem to be working. And they're not scientific. And it's never been the CDC's guidance to quarantine, which is what I think a lot of people are forgetting. So do, do I have you correctly in the sense that what's important is initially they were trying to make it seem like this virus is starting right now. So you figure like lock everyone right. up so you don't go around and spread it. But if in fact and, and, and you know, what's funny, I was just speaking to a friend in the Ohio legislature this morning and he reminded me, remember that first doomsday prediction from the health director in Ohio, 100,000 people in Ohio already have it. And. And everyone thought that was like being doomsday, but in fact, it was actually making the case better because that would indicate, no, 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 we're all, you know, a lot of people are down the curve already. It's been going on for several months and, you know, the, the, the horse already left the barn. So on the one hand, it's good news because the denominator is much bigger. That means the lethality is probably really less than one, one and a half percent. It could be a lot less depending on, you know, who, who the person is. But on the other hand, if you go and lock people up, then you're locking up people that you don't know already had it and you're going to spread it to the older people more quickly that way. Um, and what's interesting is he told me is now they're walking back the hundred thousand number. So think about yeah. this. They wanted to scare people, but now they realized, oh, well, scientifically, that makes it better. So, I mean, Jordan, doesn't this demonstrate that this is not even about a disagreement you know, academically, that this is about they are embracing an agenda as an end to itself. They want the lockdown. It's not like, oh, we really feel bad, but we think this needs to be done. They want it at all costs. Yeah. And actually, the White House has done a terrific job in kind of reversing course after they were briefed by the um, the people that put out that hysterical um, model based on, you know, completely blind assumptions and blind projections and and the code that we still, you know, have no access to from one scientist. Um, and, and I think it, it, it's worth restating how, t how tough it was um, for policymakers to initially react, but it, it's a, it's a hard lesson learned. Uh, they were told that this expert was here in America telling people that the equivalent of a, uh, you know, a viral nuclear bomb was on its way. So that was assumption number one, that it was on its way. Assumption number two was that it had this amazing mortality rate, which turns out not to be particularly true. Um, assumption number three 
was that there were all of these asymptomatic spreaders, which there's no particular evidence for at the moment. Um, people think, you know, it's spreading more like annual influenza in the sense that, you know, sick people are spreading it or pre-symptomatic people are spreading it. So whoa, there's whoa, whoa, a clear whoa, wait, Jordan, could you explain that more? So are you saying that because part of our point is that there are tons of asymptomatic people that we don't know of, and that's why the denominator is much larger, and that's why right. it's less lethal. But are you saying that it's likely those people are not as contagious? Is that is that the deal? Yeah, so it, it seems like you know the, the more data that's coming out of Asia, that it's still um, on par with previous pandemics that you can look into, it's that it's not the asymptomatic people that are the problem. So what they're doing in Asia is that, you know, they're isolating the symptomatic and contact tracing, and you're seeing very low numbers of outbreak and that they're not necessarily worried about the asymptomatic because they're actually early on, there were a couple of scientific studies that said asymptomatic uh, transmission is a huge problem. And those scientific studies, and you can link to it in the notes, were actually, um, delisted because they had no evidence. So there's been a lot of false information being put out there. There, there seems to be a significant amount of people that are getting coronavirus completely asymptomatic, but they, you know, this is why the chart kind of just like that has fallen off in the Asian countries. A lot of people, you know, are coming to this, um, hypothesis is because, you know, that, while so many people are having mild conditions, they're not necessarily the spreaders of this virus. So they can go on, you know, and live and live their lives um, kind of like the college students and not be much of a threat of, of transmitting. You know, it's the sick people that are the ones that are the transmitters. And if you if you um, tuned into uh, the White House daily press conferences, they seem to be really coming around to this understanding um, and they have more data than I think anyone because the U.S. is now over 100,000 tests per oh, yeah. day. And they're really starting to see, you know, how this thing spreads. And I think, you know, this I'm not advising the White House on policy, but I think it's very clear that after this, you know, 15 day plan that the White House is going to start telling the states, hey, you know, the lockdown thing is not a good idea. And I think Cuomo got this early on because. He's in the New York City metro area and is probably has the world's best, um, you know, pandemic people uh, advising him at this point. You have the best, you know, scientists, physicians in the world over there. So they probably got to him. Um, but I, I think that the White House, the good news is that I think the White House's guidance to the states is going to be, you should really not do the lockdown thing. It's not productive. There's no signs that it's productive. And you need to, you know, start to reopen society and the economy. And it could be counterproductive because I want to uh, stress that a little bit more. You have some very powerful tweets that, that that I think just as a presentation I haven't seen from other people. You wrote this earlier this morning. You you put a list of the hardest hit countries and you did deaths by million a million people. So you show Italy's the top 136 deaths per one million. Spain is 104. You go into some other European countries are way down, but they're still high, like France at 26 and Belgium at 25, Switzerland 24, and they all have European-style communist lockdown. Okay, but then you go to Asia and you got South Korea at three, 
Taiwan at 0.8, Japan at 0.4, and Singapore at 0.3, which, by the way, in Singapore, I read, and uh, that Washington Post um, epidemiologist, or the epidemiologist who wrote in the Washington Post that op-ed two days ago, in Singapore, which is the bottom of your list, they didn't even close the schools. No. And, and I think there's a few other countries that are deciding to take that approach. And actually, you know, you're seeing in South Korea, they're reopening the schools. And a lot of people, you know, as they accumulate the data, remember, this is a, this is a virus that came onto our radar in as early as November 2019, I believe, and maybe even earlier. And what we're seeing is that the countries that are doing the lockdowns, um, sustained lockdowns, there's no particular evidence that that is working. And it could actually be making things worse. Uh, if, if you so look can at you like, explain, the, can you explain your uh, you wrote in another tweet a scenario how it can make it worse. You you talked about multi generational households and and demographics and geography and how that plays a role. Could you could you explain that? Yeah. So there's a lot of areas um, in the world where you have father father son grandpa uncle aunt you know, all living together. So these households are, um, you have a lot of people living in the, in the house, uh, Madrid, Lombardy, uh, Queens, Wuhan, and you have very similar outcomes coming from, um, the COVID-19 outbreak. And remember, we have to also remember that this thing, we, we pretty much know how it spreads from symptomatic people which is in very close quarters. Um, so again, it kind of goes back to the, the example of shutting down the schools could actually have a very negative effect for these areas that you have many people living in confined spaces together. And when you increase the hours of them all being together, chances are that they're all going to get infected. Uh, so it, it, it's becoming a huge problem. And, and there's really no indications that there, it, it's better to shut down society because transmission isn't, remember, we have no evidence that it's happening amongst the asymptomatic. Um, so it, it's just kind of like a, a bizarre, a bizarre model that we're using. And, and again, it goes back to this whole like anti-scientific approach where people, you know, I'm seeing so many people on social media, just assuming that lockdown is, is this obvious policy, but if you actually read in the guidance from the CDC, um, other European countries, Asian countries, pandemic guidance, none of them are saying, have ever said that you should lock down in response to a pandemic. And that's the thing. I mean, we never saw that before. You always quarantine the people. You never do a wide swath of, of um, the population, which, again, not only ties into the medical strategy, but as I've noted, also constitutionally, there's very big problems to take the, you know, established quarantine powers and apply that across the board to everyone, um, because that's just straight up a violation of due process of First Amendment of everything. And to do it indefinitely, I mean, this is what I think the state legislatures need to work on. So here, here's where I'm at now. Um, you know, I think we have enough that is incontrovertibly clear that it is wrong to close businesses that especially most don't engender large gatherings. Um, you get in your car, you go to, your, you go to work. Um, that's pretty clear that we need to be doing that. But 
in terms of schools and the broader thing, so it's tough because there's a lot of murky, you know, conflicting data. And I think, you know, people are sending me different questions. Um, basically, according to the narrative we're putting together, which I think is very compelling, that if you want to say this is so tran transferable, this is so contagious. So then by definition, you can't have it both ways. If it's so contagious right. now, that means it was so contagious in December and January, where we know we had cases, you know, documented in January 15th in, in Spokane, but we weren't testing. And we know we had an insane amount of travel for two months of known Wuhan outbreak with absolutely no restrictions whatsoever. So we know it was brought in. So therefore, tons of people have had to have it. So our point is, look, you know, it's no different than January and February and thousands, you know, millions of people likely had it. Um, unfortunately, along with that, thousands more than the 1300 or so we have now died. But, you know, it's kind of like maybe 8000, 10,000, who knows, but it's not like what they predicted. And that's a, still a very small percentage. But my question to you is what, what everyone's going to ask is, look, that that's nice. And you're tr it's true that the you know, the death spiral we're seeing on the graphics are just a reflection of testing, revealing the reality that was already there. But why does it seem that we never heard about an emergency situation in New York City or elsewhere in January, February in the hospitals, but now we suddenly have it? Well, Jordan, doesn't that prove that, no, this is really starting more in March and, you know, we need to stuff it in, you know, where we could get it before it spreads and really you know there's something more going on now than there was before yeah you even had um a lot of this is on new york city officials you had top health officials in new york city telling everyone no need to worry take the bus uh take the subway these are areas where it's obvious that transmission is going to be super high you know enclosed spaces recirculated air um sick people the massive quantities of people. So they did not do a good job at all at, you know, basic hygienic protocols that you were seeing coming out of Asia. So what happened is you, know, you had this explosion in transmission. Um, but in a lot of other cities, you don't have that extreme urban density problem. So it, New York it, it is a very different story but I still think that if you, if you look at the numbers, you have to come to the conclusion that at this point, the vast majority of New York that has already um, gotten coronavirus ha has it. And so the lockdown thing is only going to make the problem worse because you're just, you know, you're, you could be at the peak transmission point and then you're bringing everyone together. So I, I think that, you know, the White House made a really good point that actually the, you know, that we're actually coming to the end of flu season. And, and there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic that our healthcare system can very much handle an outbreak based on the data that we have. And we need to adjust U.S. policy from COVID-19 is a nuclear bomb that's going to kill millions of people to COVID-19 um, seems like a bad flu season, very 
toxic for sick and elderly people, but not toxic um, mm-hmm. according to the data for the young and healthy. Even in New York City, 97% of people that are um, coming in for COVID-19 that, uh, that have unfortunately died have had pre-existing conditions. So we very much know what it targets. Um, but then and, they're and throwing again, all these cases of, you know, young, healthy people that die two days later from this. Yeah. So this is, this is the issue is that I'm seeing so many people on social media in particular and people that are entrenched in one position or the other, uh, appeal to emotions instead of looking, you know, there are very sad cases, um, Yes. Many children die of seasonal influenza every year. Imagine if the New York Times was leading every day with a baby that died of the flu and how that would impact our national yeah. policy. Yeah. And, and, and the, re- the reality is that the numbers, the numbers do not lie. Um, 99.9 plus percent of people that are under the age of 30 if they get this thing, they end up fine. Um, so we need to have a rational, not an emotional U S policy that takes into account, Hey, these are the age brackets that are impacted. These are the conditions that could be worsened if you contract the virus and this whole, Oh, you know, but this, but this healthy, otherwise 25 year old outlier, um, got very sick and has to be on a ventilator. You people need to remember that you, you can look at the statistics. These people are unfortunate, you know, it's very tragic, but they are not um, a representative model of what's going on with the entirety of the global population. You know, I told my wife the same thing. I said, you know, let's reconstruct incontrovertible data. Every year, according to CDC, in the peak three months of the flu season, there's anywhere between 3,000 to 5,000, some in the worst times, um, individuals in the U.S. who die weekly of pneumonia, weekly from pneumonia. I could easily, if I had an agenda, a nefarious agenda, and I had control of the media, I could easily construct a narrative that does have truth to it. Remember, there's truth to everything. It's a matter of what you do with it. But I could construct the following narrative that does have truth to it. That's like, look, there are, you know, gosh, well, what is that? 4,000 times times 12 weeks, let's just say. I mean, heck, that's that that's a lot of people. I mean, that, that is that is a heck of a lot of people dying of pneumonia. 50,000 people, you could say, dying of pneumonia. And I'll say, you know, you healthy, you know, SOB are going out there. Okay, you know, you're not going to be affected by the flu. But you go out there, you got a cold, you got a flu, you might not think it's a big deal, but guess what? You're going to give it to granny and you know how many people got pneumonia, you know, because they're going to, you know, most of those deaths are probably probably elderly and they get pneumonia from it and some of them are going to die and it's on you. And you know what? Obviously, you know, anyone hearing that would laugh and know it's, you know, it's crazy talk, but it's it's not that there's not any truth to it. It does happen, unfortunately, in, in life that that's part of the cycle of life. And that's part of the way God, you know, ends people's lives. And, you know, you do have to take precautions. You don't you know, you, you don't have kids yet, Jordan. One day we hope you do. But you'll see that, you know, you got to make decisions. You have kids that are 
in preschool and you know elementary school and you're like, eh, I don't want to take off of work another day. No, I mean, you, you really got to be careful with that and you got to be considerate and not spread it around. But you can't what you can't do is shut down the country and say, because maybe one person will give it to someone else and they'll die from it. Because then, I mean, you know, look, we're going to have again, it could be 10,000 people die from this. You know, we hope it's you know 15, whatever it will be. We hope it's as little as possible. But you could construct that every pneumonia season, right? Yeah. And I want to make a really essential data point here because there's so much fake news out there and hysteria in the media that a lot of people are not reading the data on COVID-19 spread correctly. And this one point that broke in the news yesterday about the U.S. having more coronavirus cases than any other country in the world. And there's very there's one reason for that in particular is that we're testing more than any other country in the world. We yeah. did a hundred. We did more than a hundred thousand uh, COVID nineteen tests. Uh, we're doing more than a hundred thousand per day now at this rate, and what we are experiencing is not exponential rapid growth. So it debunks it debunks that that ridiculous study that says that everyone's going to get it, everyone's going to die. We are experiencing uh, linear growth. So we are tracking the testing rates to people that are getting coronavirus essentially one-to-one. So that means that it's it's a great reason for optimism because it means, especially outside of the New York City metro area, that that realistically this thing has been around here for months, but it has not reached this point where transmission is out of control. It means that transmission is actually under control and that with smart federal and state guidance, that we can continue to isolate you know, the symptomatic and the sick and elderly. And if we continue to remove, you know, if we, if we chip away at this one-to-one ratio, you will see, you know, what they call this curve flattening, I think much sooner than we think. No, we certainly, we certainly hope so. What I'm trying to figure out is, isn't the 800 pound gorilla in the room to get this antibody testing that Dr. Burks talked about up and running to really start sampling the population as to how many people have gotten it and are immune to it. Because wouldn't that really answer the big question? So so right now in New York City, the last time I checked, the um, fatality rate was about 1.1%. But isn't it true that even though they're doing, they're really testing there, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, my assumption was it's only those that are symptomatic beyond a certain level. So even that is not likely the full universe, and it could very well be that if you added, meaning it's 1.1% fatality rate, which, which again, it's a lot higher than the flu, and we do have to take this seriously. It's a lot lower than what they were saying, but that even that's only among those who get past a certain threshold, right? But if you, if you added in the general population that contracted in some way, wouldn't it really likely go down a lot? Right. So... I think it's important also to like when we're looking at New York City, um, we, we also need to take into account, you know, what we know globally about COVID-19. And that's 95 percent of people who have tested confirmed are considered um, to be in, in a mild condition. So if you extrapolate that out, that 95 percent of people who have gotten tested are not particularly at risk, that means that 
well, you know, there's, there's so many more multiple factors of people that are just kind of staying home, have either, you know, low fever, cough, the, the symptoms that you're seeing and just decide, you know, not to get tested because they don't reach a point where they feel like they need to, you know, take action. Uh, so you really need to consider that. And then when you extrapolate, like how many positives we're already seeing in New York city, you have to assume that it's, uh, it, it, they have a very high number of asymptomatic mild people that have already gotten it because there's no way that you can just have individual pockets in a city that's that confined that has, um, not seen the virus yet. See, I mean, th this is just what I can't figure out. Um, and, and I guess in, until we have those antibodies and we see what happens there, um, here's a question that some people might float around. And I want you to see, you know, just to tell us what you've seen on this from your investigation so far. Is it a possibility that there's some sort of dual track? I mean, different strains of it, because it seems like, you know, some people barely get it versus other people and then there are stories again even of young people with no pre-existing conditions that just drop dead after two days and they stop breathing and and that that version of it could be more what we're seeing in march as opposed to what you know we saw maybe unknowingly in january and february is that a possibility yeah I, I, there's another big myth floating around on the internet about the long-term damage imposed by covid19 and it's, it's important to note that uh, the leading White House coordinators, Fauci and Burks, have both uh, rebutted this argument and have said multiple times now that there is no evidence that there's any widespread uh, long-term issues from getting infected. Most vast majority of people make full recovery without any long-term consequences. I'm seeing a lot of stuff on social media saying we're going to have a generation of people walking around uh, with asthma, with, you know, with the permanent organ damage. We, there's a lot of unknowns in this world and there's a lot of knowns and there is no, you can ask these people to point to a study. Uh, there are no studies that show that, you know, there's all these people that are developing all this long-term damage. There's, a, again, it, it's these appeals to individual articles, individual instances uh, with like a Belgian doctor or an Australian doctor that said, oh my goodness, look at this, uh, look at this MRI and look what's happening to this guy's body who has COVID-19. You know, there could be so many factors, but the important part, I think, is to, to listen to Fauci and Burks when they say, yeah, there's no evidence for that stuff being widespread. And there's a lot of other things in this world that can cause harm to you, but speculation isn't particularly helpful and speculation should not be driving uh, national policy at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's what it, and especially when it's this severe, like you got it, you know, you could do that for a day or two and say, look, we got to get clarity, just stay home for now, but you can't do that indefinitely without asking questions when everything they've said until now has completely just blown up on us. Um, what are we seeing just in terms of the ventilator? So again, this is another area where there's, there seems to be, 
you know, people are very confused. You know, on the one hand, you know, the officials seem to be saying we have it under control, but there are a lot of videos being passed around the web from people that kind of look authentically that they are nurses or doctors in New York City, but also starting in like the Detroit area now and New Orleans, other areas where they're dealing with this. They're like, look, we're overrun. We have an emergency at the hospital. It's just so hard to get a grasp of what is going on in the hospitals on the ground. Yeah. Well, the guidance from Dr. Burks yesterday is that she said was very straightforward that there are there's a difference between a hospital being, um, you know, pushed and completely overwhelmed beyond its limits. And we actually see this happen a lot, um, you know, being pushed to capacity during the worst parts of flu season. Mm. And she said on the record that. We're getting ventilators to people. We're getting ventilators to hospitals and that there is no, even in the worst case, New York city, there is the hospital system is not being overwhelmed to the point where care is, is decreasing because of that, that, you know, they, you know, they're being pushed, but they're handling it. So there's a big difference between that and saying, um, that these these models are correct that our, our healthcare systems are overwhelmed and are, are you know that there's a negative effect of the the COVID nineteen explosion in our in our healthcare systems. So uh, she was pretty clear about that. Okay, we're almost done here, but there's so many like you know again a lot of people are sending me questions just go, going randomly around the map here. A lot of talk about Germany. So Germany is a European country, but. You know, everyone's talking about the, you know, their success there, 0.3% um, uh, death rate and uh, how they really tested early and often. Do they have a lockdown? Um, let me see. I don't, I don't, I think they have uh, I seen pretty anything. harsh. I, I think that they have uh, pretty harsh measures in place for, for lockdown. Um, but it's hard to know which variable is doing it. And, and, and like you're saying, it's like, Germany and Israel seem to be the cases of harsh lockdown, probably, presumably. And you could check that up. I didn't mean to spring that on you, but Israel, we know, has a very harsh lockdown and they do have a low rate. I mean, you know, but the Asian countries don't have a lockdown. They have a low rate and other European countries have a lockdown and a high rate. So what's kind of the secret sauce here? Yeah, that's the thing. And, and that we don't have evidence that we do have evidence that the, that the Asian systems appear to be working. A lot of people seem to be writing it off. We don't have evidence that the lockdown is working, but we also really, um, you know, it, the, the problem with saying that that lockdown is working is that there's no, you know, there's, there's no real widespread, um, evidence that it would be any better if they just in that it would be any worse if they just embraced um, some type of hybrid system or completely open system. So, you know, it's tough to get data on that in real time, but the countries that are struggling the worst are the countries that have locked down. And in addition to the lockdown, let's say that that lockdown proves to be neutral and that, you know, you would have faced the same results. If you're locking down your, your economy for you know 14 days, 21 days, 28 days, you're creating irreparable harm, not only to the economy, to society, but you're also shutting down, you know, you're, you're decreasing people's health 
in the process. You know, there's so many negative effects of societal lockdown that people really aren't acknowledging. And I, but you are starting to see at least these states uh, start to become more wise on the effects of this, probably because their constituents are going crazy at them. Uh, you, you have someone in a small town who runs a business in upstate New York, they're not being affected the same way that New York city yeah, is being affected. Exactly. So these draconian mandates are, you know, they're, they're so, they're so foolish and not taking into account, uh, you know, the geographic yeah. realities. Yeah. You have an outdoor production assembly line or, you know, they work outdoors and produce stuff sometimes. And, you know, there's no, no reason to shut that down, especially when ironically mass transit technically is still running, um, which is just bizarre. So, uh, yeah, a lot to go on here. I could go on and on, but we're at a time. You're going to keep us updated throughout the week. People could find you again on Twitter at Jordan Shachtel. Thanks so much for coming on twice this week. This is a record. Uh, have a great yeah. weekend. All right. Thanks. You too. Take care. God bless. So there you have it, folks. Jordan Shachtel. And, and again, this is the power. The power of thinking out of the box. You know, I have I had Jordan on twice this week. You know, other shows will have on people with a lot of, you know, degrees and alphabet soups after their name and oh, they're this and they have them on Fox News. And, you know, you don't really hear much from them. It's a bunch of platitudes. And you, with him, there's just like a lot of good research. There just is. Uh, he, he was you know, he worked for me for a while. Now he's gone independent. Um, we're still friends and um, work together a lot. And you, you look at his Twitter feed. It's just full of. You know, whatever your perspective is, I mean, just wow. OK, that's 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 good thinking. That's good data. You that's that's good, unique content. Um, and that's what we're going to try to do with our guests. Um, I just want to cap off this week and look, there's so much more to talk about. And we'll, we'll have to see where this heads on Monday. So our team is still going to work the Facebook page and you'll look for our written content. Um, I just want to leave you with this story. We haven't even begun to imagine the emotional and mental health issues that are going to arise from this. I mean, I don't know. My youngest five-year-old, I mean, he, he's been waking up every night. He woke up four times last night. It's, I'm not sure if it's from this. I don't know. But, you know, this is very traumatic. And again, you got to really be sure that this is what you need to be doing before you do it. And it's just truly shocking that we live with people that just don't care. They just don't care. They act like they care. Oh, they really care. No, they don't. So I want to leave you with this story. I have a neighbor of mine that is, you know, they're, they're really nice people. They're, they're, they're kind of eclectic. And they're, they're the type to just be really worried about things. I mean, really, really. Um, just to give you a, a sense, picture keeping your daughter in a booster till God knows what age. You, you know exactly what I mean. So um, we just knew right away you know, they'd take it seriously. We, we haven't seen them. They've been in the house, that house for like four weeks, three and a half weeks or whatever. It's been more than three weeks and just like shades down. I mean, nothing going on there. And I did see the, um, you know, the father. And one time he looks like he did go to the mailbox. And, you know, we, we spoke a little bit. I, again, friendly person. So yesterday I was playing with my kids in the backyard after I was done work late afternoon. 
And all of a sudden, I see the mother and the daughter emerge. And it's, it's a small yard. It's, it's gated in. It's a small yard. And they're just walking around pretty briskly in a circle. Just, just they keep walking around. And they almost look like they're in a trance. I mean, it was scary. Um, they didn't look happy or healthy. Um, I couldn't tell if they were even talking to each other or not. And normally, like, again, we're very friendly to wave like and, and I understood I wouldn't get close to them. I, I, I totally knew they would be like very, very, you know, into that and everything. And and I was about to wave and say something. And I was just I don't know. I, I was terrified. I was scared of them. I didn't know what to say because they weren't acknowledging me. And then so my youngest son got his ball stuck over the fence and it was right there. And there, there is almost no way they didn't see it because he was putting his head up against the gate, kind of like braying and moaning at it. Like, you know, he wanted his ball. And normally I just like, Hey, you know, could you get the ball or something? Or we would just go in and get it. But they were like, pick a picture. You know, my son's kind of crying about his ball and they're just running around in circles in the back of their yard. And the ball is right in front of them. And so I, I was terrified to walk in because I didn't want to, like, I thought they'd bite my head off or something. And then, but on the same time, I would understand they wouldn't want to touch the ball. Um, and my son was like so scared and whatever. Like I, so I went in to ask my wife what to do. And finally, by the time I came out, it looks like they went inside and my older son just went in there and got it. And all I'm saying is it just spooked me out. Um, and, and there's a lot of people that, you know, they, they trust everything the government puts out and the state put and, and they, they take it to heart. And especially if they're more, you know, overly cautious uh, as their personality. I mean, you're, you're going to destroy people. I mean, that you're going to you're going to really abuse people. You, I mean, we, we cannot begin to imagine the effects of this in the long term. And that's why we need an agenda beginning on Monday to reopen America. Let's start hashtag reopen America. Sign up for Harwood Citizen Sanctuary at Facebook. We're going to continue full coverage. Have a safe and blessed weekend. God bless y'all. Mm-hmm.